0: What does the Bible say about the involvement of extended family in a marriage? It's today's cross culture QA question. The answer right after the Easter edition of Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: I'll be honest with you. I don't know of anybody that's ever preached or brought a message on Easter Sunday from Revelation chapter 5, but I don't know how I've ever missed it before. I don't know how I've missed it all this time.
0: Easter Sunday. Most of us remember it as a time when our parents made us put on something new. Girls usually got a new dress. Boys got a new shirt or maybe a new pair of shoes. But did you ever think about the fact that the first Easter started with taking something off?
1: What happened to the body? That's the question that men have been asking for 2,000 years and been trying to solve. What happened to the body?
0: The Gospel accounts tell us that when Peter and John looked into the tomb early that Sunday morning so long ago, they expected to see the body of Jesus. Instead, all they saw were the grave clothes Jesus had been wrapped in after he was taken off the cross. The clothes were still lying there, but the body was gone, and the world has never been the same.
1: That the one main thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is the empty tomb.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to the Easter edition of Crosswalk. Today we continue our series entitled The Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 5, which along with chapter 4 makes up what Pastor Clay calls the pause of praise. Last week we saw that God is worthy of worship because of who He is, the Creator. Today in Revelation chapter 5, we find the second reason to worship and praise our God because of what He's done.
1: It is Easter Sunday, or as I like to refer to it, Resurrection Sunday, or Jesus kicked death's tail day. It's a big day. It's a big deal. Easter Resurrection Sunday is a big deal for followers of Jesus. Because I mean think about it. Death is the is the universal constant in all of our lives. No matter what language you speak, no matter how much money you have, no matter your address, or your education, or the color of your skin, or male or female, death comes to all. Death wins every time, except this one time. It's a big deal, this resurrection day. I mentioned last week that uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, me and a couple of my sons hung out over at UNC's campus, there was this debate uh, between uh, the atheists and the God-believing people. There was a debate. And after the debate, uh, there was a Q&A time where they accepted answers from the people sitting in the, in the auditorium. And one guy uh, raised his hand, was recognized. He said, I just want to know one thing. He said, I just want to know why these Christians... You can hear him. Y'all ever talk somebody just gets angry when you just talk about Jesus? They just start getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I just want to know one thing. I just want to know why these Christians think they are right. Why, out of all the religions in the world, why is it that Christians think that they are the only ones that are right? After uh, the Q&A time and all that kind of stuff, uh, my son Travis struck up a conversation with the young man that asked that question. And, uh, and I was standing there and was in, in the conversation as well. And, and there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things, really. If, there, there are a lot of things that separate Christianity from other religions in the world. But what I said to this guy is that, that the one main thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is the empty tomb. That's it, the empty tomb. What happened to the body? That's the question that men have been asking for 2,000 years and been trying to solve. What happened to the body? It's a big deal. This Easter thing, this resurrection from the dead. A lot of times uh, on on Resurrection Sunday, I'll bring some type of message that is uh, designed to, uh, to expose the validity or the historical accuracy for the claim that Jesus Christ uh, died and rose again on the third day, came back to life. Oftentimes, I'll bring a message built around that, kind of an apologetic, where, where I build a defense for the, for the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've done that a lot of times on Easter Sundays. I, I don't want to do that today. Today, I, I, just, I just want to celebrate it. I just want to celebrate it. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I don't want to necessarily bring a, a message that, that tries to defend The historical accuracy of the resurrection. One is, is that the longer I'm at this, I have discovered that if somebody doesn't want to believe, and listen, I'm not discounting apologetics, and there's a place for it, and we need to be ready, as Peter says, to give every man an answer of a hope, of the hope that is in us. I'm not discounting that, but one of the things that I've discovered is the longer I'm at this, if somebody doesn't want to believe, then it doesn't matter how much evidence I present to them. If their heart's not right, if they have no desire to actually believe, they're not going to believe no matter what I say. And opposite that, I have discovered that if someone actually, genuinely, truly wants to believe, they're they're uncertain, they have questions, but, but there's this longing in them to know whether this God is real and whether this thing is true, that He actually rose from the dead and, and all that stuff that those Christians talk about. If there's somebody that actually wants to know that sort of thing, I have discovered that people, that God will work in that person's life in such a way that they will come to a point of belief even if they don't have all of their questions answered. The other reason I'm not really interested in in kind of building an apologetic today is because in 2010, here at Cross Culture, we are walking through the book of Revelation. And today, uh, in the providence of God, and I'll explain that in a moment, we come to Revelation chapter 5. And Revelation chapter 5 doesn't try to prove the resurrection. Revelation chapter 5 assumes the resurrection and celebrates it. Revelation uh, chapter 5 is a uh, continuation from Revelation chapter 4. That's something that started last week in, in our study. We're in Revelation chapter 4 and we're looking at it. It's, it's assuming, it's picking up on this idea. Now listen, I wish I could take credit for saying, yep, planned it all out that we'd be at Revelation chapter 5 on Easter Sunday. I ain't that good. <laughs> I, I had no idea when we started this study the first Sunday in January, I had no idea that we would be at this precise place in the book of Revelation at this precise time. Only God could orchestrate how this came out. I'm telling you that. And even he threw a snow day in there where we got canceled so that it worked out. So that today we'd be at Revelation chapter five. I'll be honest with you. I don't know of anybody that's ever preached or brought a message on Easter Sunday from Revelation chapter 5. But I don't know how I've ever missed it before. I don't know how I've missed it all this time. Revelation chapter 5, as I said, is a continuation of Revelation chapter 4. And last week in Revelation chapter 4, we saw this, this awesome scene where where God the Father is seated on this throne in heaven. John, the apostle who is, who is writing these words, has been summoned to heaven. He's been caught up to heaven in a vision. And in the vision, he sees this throne. And on that throne sits God the Father. And light and, and brilliance and color are emanating from this throne. And lightning and, and peals of thunder are, are coming from the throne. And the Holy Spirit is, is there. And these, these four creatures are gathered there around the throne. There's there's this rainbow probably vertically encircling the throne. We talked about what all that meant. And these creatures gathered around the throne, which as I said last week, I believe, represent all of God's creation. Gathered there. And gathered there are these 24 elders circled around the throne it, with the thrones of their own, actually. Encircling the throne with their, with their white garments and their victor's crowns. It's this incredible, magnificent scene. And as we read it last week, it, it, it builds to this place where where the, the creatures uh, bow down, and, and the twenty four elders bow down, and they cast their thrones before the uh, before the their, their crowns before the throne of God. And in in chapter 4, in in verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. What a magnificent scene in heaven. It's only going to get better in chapter 5. I said last week, if you were here, you may remember that I said that, that while God's attributes are many, and we will spend eternity worshiping Him and praising Him and, and, and learning all who our God is. While there are many, for our purposes in chapter 4 last week and in chapter 5 this week, you can really kind of focus our, our reasons for worship down to two things. Two reasons to worship God. The first one we looked at last week, and it was the BP square. It was the big picture biblical principle from last week. And it was this, worthy of worship, God the Creator. That's what verse 11 is all about. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. He's worthy of worship, God the creator. That's what we said last week. Because of who he is. The second reason we worship him is found in chapter 5 this morning. Let's read it together. The text will be up on the screen. Uh, if you'd like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet that you can feel free to do that. You've even got a little flip-up desk there if you'd like to use that. Revelation chapter 5. Now just follow along, but kind of let, let yourself go into this. Let yourself see this scene that John is seeing. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And then I began to weep Greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders and, and, a number of, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and all the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. What a scene. I mentioned last week again that... Chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation make up what I call a pause of praise that falls in between the end of the church age found in chapters 1 through 3 and before the beginning of the tribulation period that begins in chapter 6. This pause of praise that, that recognizes and glorifies God for who He is, as we saw last week, and for what He does. What a scene. What a magnificent! Magnificent scene. Let's break it down and look at it just a little bit this morning. As we begin in Revelation chapter 5... Again, notice it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Notice how it's just continuing on from chapter 4. The scene opens in chapter 4. John's taken to heaven. He begins to describe this scene and what he sees, the throne and the thrones and the creatures and the elders and the, and the light and the rainbow and the, and the lightning and the th- all this kind of stuff. And they just picked up in chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. What John means when, when he writes the word book or what is translated in English in book is the word Scroll. There weren't actually flat books like we have today. In those days, there were, there were rolls of paper or parchment, what it might sometimes be referred to as, rolled up on a, on a stick or a couple of sticks. And, and John happens to say, and I, so much stuff in the Bible, I, I just it's not there by accident. I think that he's saying stuff to us all the time. He says, a book Written inside and on the back. He says that this that this scroll is written on the inside and the back. In other words, on the front side and the back side of the paper. That was unusual for scrolls. They didn't usually write on both sides of the paper, and it had to do with the way parchments were put together. It, it, the way it worked, they, they brought these sheets together, and what happened was you ended up usually on one side, you had these, these horizontal lines, and on the other side, you had these vertical lines. And, and so, on the horizontal side, that was the side that they wrote on because the pen or the quill could write and not much problem. But on the other side, the, the, as you can imagine, it, the quill would get hooked in the… In the, in the vertical lines as they, as they rode across. So it was unusual. It wasn't totally unheard of, but it was unusual for both sides of a scroll to be written on. I think what John is saying is, this is the complete story. This is the whole story. This is, in other words, God has spoken. God has said this is, is how he's going to bring this thing to a conclusion. This is what is about to, to be unfolded or revealed to you. This is the revelation. And no man is going to fill in any blanks. Nobody's going to add to anything that he said, that he has filled up the pages front and back with everything that needs to be said concerning these events. Again, and we've said this throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen this. I I think it's speaking to the fact that God is large and in charge. God is on his throne. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. Now he says there in verse 1 also that that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now a seal... Uh, most of you probably already know this, was simply uh, hot wax poured on to the end of the roll wherever it came to an end. Hot wax would be poured on, and then a signet ring or a stamp would be impressed into the wax so that as it dried, it left this seal across the edge of the paper so that no one could open this this scroll or this document Unless they had the right to do so, unless they had the authority to do so. In this case, it's sealed with seven seals. As I understand it, uh, by Roman law, a will, a person's will had to be sealed with seven seals. Well, this, in a sense, is a will. This is the will of God. And seven, we've looked at this over and over again, it shows up again and again. Seven in Scripture represents the number of completion or fulfillment. So in other words, this this is fulfilling, this is completing, this is the whole deal. This is the complete story. And these seven seals, verify it. we'll look at those seals in the coming weeks as as they begin to be discussed. John says he sees this strong angel. It's probably not a reference to to the angel's physical strength probably more a reference to his his position. There is indication in Scripture that there is some type of structure or hierarchical form among the angelic hosts. Some scholars believe that this angel is actually Gabriel because Gabriel was almost always present when some type of announcement was made. Maybe. In, in any event, this strong angel begins to speak out with this loud voice. The implication is that it's that there's... That this is heard everywhere. No, nobody's like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't catch that." Everybody is able to hear this, and he ca- cries out with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Who can do this? Who has the authority to break these seals?" And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. No angel, no man. No demon, no one had the right or the authority to break these seals. They just simply didn't have the authority to do so. Uh, listen, I, uh, to me, the, the, it just reminds me of this fact that, that the, the, the devil may have, have deceived himself into thinking that he can still win this thing and man may have deceived himself into thinking that he's the master of his own fate. But again, God is on his throne and he has made these decrees and no one is going to change what God in heaven has declared. No one can can break the seals. No one can can find the uh, has the authority to to break the seals. And so as a result of that in verse 4, John begins to weep uncontrollably. Just begins to just to sob and weep because John seems to understand that 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 this book that we're looking at in chapter 5. This book is the key. This book opens up everything to us to understand how God is going to wind this thing up and, and how God is going to bring this thing to a finish. And we've got to know what's in the book. We've got to know how it turns out. We've got to be able to look into this book and he just begins to cry and weep and cry. And, and then, of course, one of the angels says, Stop crying, John. Don't cry anymore. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I don't have time to go into it all today, folks, but both of those references are Old Testament references to the, to, the, to the Messiah, the one who would come someday to set the people free. Everybody understood that. Everybody in Judaism would have understood that, and all the early Christians would have understood that. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, oh, that's referring to the Messiah. That's the one who's going to come. And, and the, the elder says that he has overcome. He is overcome. And he has the right. He has the authority. He has the power to break these seals. He's the one that has, that has the right to do it. And John sees him. And he says, there, he says I see him. He, he, he's a lamb. A lamb as if standing. In other words, John says, well, he's got the marks of death. He's got the scars that, that shows that he's suffered and, and he's gone through. John can look at this lamb and he can tell that, that, that he's been through a lot and that, and that he should be dead. But John says, he's standing. He's alive. He's overcome. And so he has the right to open the seals and to look in and to see what is written therein. continues on and he... He says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. He says, having seven horns. What is a strange thing, these seven horns? Remember, much of the book of Revelation, not all of it, some of it is is actually, much of it is literal, but some of it is also symbolic. In the Bible, horns always represent strength or power. And so seven horns on this lamb, I didn't say this, but I guess you can figure this out, the lamb is Jesus Christ. Clearly, the lamb is Jesus Christ. He's the root of David. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And these horns, and the fact that he has seven of them, there's that number seven again, says that he has complete or total power, authority, strength. Seven horns, not just a pair of horns. Seven horns. He has complete and total strength, complete power. And he's got... Seven eyes, which John explains are the spirits of God. We've talked, that's gone over a number of times. We've, we've said that. But the point is, is, that, is that it shows that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is there with God the Son, just like He was there with God the Father. Notice the equality. And the eyes probably speak of His wisdom or His, his knowledge of the entire earth, because it says he's sent, he's, the eyes that go throughout the earth. Nothing, nothing escapes God's view or purview. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This one, this lamb who was slain, but he's clearly alive and he, and he has power and he has strength and he is able to come and take the book, God the Son taking the book from God the Father. Now, notice what's hap- what happens. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And then there's this insert, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. There's nothing about that in chapter 4. As best I can tell, the harps represent the praise that, that the Lamb is due, that He deserves praise because He has overcome and overcome for us because He is worthy. The, the golden bowls, uh, John says, they're, they're the prayers of the saints, of believers, and he describes them as like incense. The, 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 the prayers, as best I can tell, simply represent our faith in God. Our faith in, in God's ability to hear our prayers and answer our prayers and move and do exactly what needs to be done in each of our lives as it needs to be done. I, I went this weekend to, uh, to see, with a group of, of people, I went to see uh, Clash of the Titans, new movie that opened. Now, uh, some of you out there may be thinking, well, I don't believe we ought to go even be seeing that kind of movie Sure don't think a preacher ought to go see that kind of movie because it's, uh, it's full of uh, these Greek mythological gods and it's all about the, these mythological gods and I just don't think I Well, clearly I didn't have a problem going to see it since I did. Um, but in the movie, in the movie... Um, it's it's an interesting thing. The the gods are you know if you're familiar with Greek mythology they're on Mount Olympus and Zeus is the is the main god but there's a bunch of gods and the, and men mankind has rebelled in the movie mankind is rebelling against the gods and one of the ways that they're doing that according to the movie is by withholding their prayers and they're withholding their prayers because according to the movie the gods need the prayers of men. For immortality. In other words, to be immortal, they need men's prayers. And if men could cease to pray to them, those gods would cease to exist. Listen, I just want to say to you that the one true God does not need our prayers. He is God, He is eternal, He is immortal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And He is God whether we pray to Him or not, okay? But what a beautiful thing that God would see my prayers as some type of sweet aroma, some type of sweet incense lifted to Him. That God would think that much of my prayers. I tell you, it convicts me. I think, goodness gracious, I, I sometimes spend so little time in prayer, And God is receiving my prayers as if there's some type of sweet incense lifted to Him. It's a demonstration of our faith to God. God, this is out of my hands. You're going to have to move and work in this situation, and He does, including in the context of this, in bringing salvation to mankind. But this this whole thing, this whole thing is building to this crescendo. What this crescendo of praise. And, worship. and I want to read it to you again in verse 9 and following. All this, and I think this whole scene, everything in chapter 4, everything up to this point in chapter chapter 5, this, this magnificent scene. And in verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of angels. Now, get this picture, folks. Suddenly, the angels show up. They hadn't been there before, but now the angels show up. How many are there? I don't know. Myriads of myriads. It basically means almost an innumerable number, almost uncountable number. No doubt it is finite, but they're saying that there's so many there, myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, and all of them join with the elders and join with the creatures and 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 this this praise, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive what's this power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven, by the way, it's the complete. It's all. He's worthy of all of it. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and on the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice the equality in the worship between the Father and the Son. To both of them be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is what today is all about. This lamb that was slain, but has overcome. This is what it's about. I wonder if you and I today have any sense or any idea of how much God actually loves us. Because there's two things that I see as a result of, of the cross. the two things I see when I look at the cross, and even in this text here. Two things. Number one, the depth of our sin, and number two, the depth of God's love for us. Let me show you just a few passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 5 says this. Give me Romans 5, please. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Watch this. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Look at this, uh, Job chapter 19. As for me, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Job 33. Uh, He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 34, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 71, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you in my soul, which you have redeemed. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. You want to know what the second reason is why we worship God? You know what the BP squared is today, the big picture biblical principle? It's this, worthy of worship, God the Redeemer. He is worthy to receive praise and honor and glory and power and dominion because He loved us that much. Jesus did not go to a cross and die. He was not battered and bloodied and beaten, nails driven through His hands and feet, mocked. Laughed at, scourged, hung between two thieves, and, and the weight of the sin of the world placed upon him in some way that I freely confess I do not understand, but the sin of the world placed upon him. He did not go through all of that so that you and I could have a better life. He did that so that you and I could have life, to actually experience in the fullness what God created us for in the first place. A relationship with him that brings more meaning and purpose to your life than you can possibly even imagine if you don't have that relationship with him now. And it's paid for. It's all paid for. All he says is let anyone who will come. Come to me by faith, acknowledging your need for a relationship with him and asking him to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life and to save you. Oh, I don't. I don't begin to pretend to understand every bit of it, but I believe it because God has proven himself over and over and over again in his word and in my life. No matter who you are today or, or where you're from or what language you speak or how much money you make or how much education you have or the color of your skin, I can promise you death is on its way. And there would be no hope except for that one that one that overcame and conquered death, kicked death's tail and made it possible that you and I could have eternal life now and the eternity
0: to come. Worthy of worship, God the Redeemer. Throughout heaven and earth and even under the earth, no one had the authority to break the seals. But just when it seemed to John that all hope was lost, the Lamb appeared and he is worthy because he has overcome. Because Christ defeated death, you and I have victory. His sacrifice brought us peace and the promise of eternal life. What a promise. What a Savior. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Cross-Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross-Culture and Q&A.
1: Q&A time at uh, Cross-Culture Church. Uh, the, the question uh, this morning... Uh, looks like this. This is the way I I framed it after I got the question. What does the Bible say about the involvement of extended family in a marriage? You ever wondered about that? Only those of you who are married have ever wondered about that. Now, I got to tell you, it was kind of funny. You know, a lot of times I'll try and uh, summarize the question from the way the person writes it, but it was kind of Kind of funny though. This it is the way it's written on the card. Now you see it up there. It says, "To what extent should a couple go to protect their marriage when it comes to their parents, siblings, and other family influencing, giving advice, meddling, or occupying your time?" <laughs> well, could you be a little more specific? <laughs> so, uh, so I summarized it. What does the Bible say about the involvement of extended family in a marriage? Hey, it's a good question because those of us that are married and have extended family. Parents, parents-in-law, uh, you know, brothers, sisters, and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes there can be some some tension and some difficulty that exists within the within the family. Uh, the best way to answer that question is to begin with a passage of scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter two and verse twenty-four says, "So a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife." The King James says, "Cleave." It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. It, it's 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 a, it's this. Joining together really is what it means. So a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one body, one flesh. The implication of God's commandment there as he performed the first wedding ceremony with Adam and Eve, the implication is is that when a man... Uh, finds a woman that he desires to be his wife, and, and, a, and a woman finds a man that she desires to be her husband, that when they come together and unite together in marriage, that from that moment on, they are beginning a new family unit. Now, your family or your extended family is always your family, right? Your parents are your parents. Your brothers and sisters are always your brothers and sisters. But they're clearly, scripturally, there is... There is a uh, something new started from this moment on. And this unit, this two that become one, takes precedence over everything else. Takes precedence over the other family members. And these two come together. There's a joining together in such a way that, uh, that nothing should come between the relationship between a man and a man and a woman. Another passage of Scripture that's kind of connected to this in Ephesians chapter 5, probably the foremost passage of Scripture dealing with with marriage, says this, Wives, yield to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I know that's not really popular in an egalitarian society, but it's, it's still biblical. It's still there if you understand it biblically and not necessarily the way sometimes men interpret it. And he is the savior of the body, which is the church. As the church yields to Christ, so wives should yield to your husbands in everything. But wait a minute. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So there's this, really there's this dual idea of placing yourselves under your spouse or putting your spouse's needs ahead of yours. I've often told couples in counseling, I said, really, uh, the guy's... You know theirs is stronger than yours. All you got to do, I tell the wife, all you got to do is submit. He's got to die. Uh, it, it's a willingness to to die to yourself, to your wants and your desires when they are not in the best interest of your spouse. But the idea of the text is is there's there's is this mutual building the other up and putting their interests first and foremost in your life. Now let me say this: I don't want to get into the whole you know breaking that text down too much, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that you that you give or do everything for your spouse that your spouse wants. That may not always be what is best uh, for them, but it does mean this idea that that my spouse is the priority of my life. So when it comes to extended family, your spouse is the priority of your life. So I, I jotted down just a few kind of bullet point. Things, uh, if I thought about it, you could probably come up with, with ten more. I think I wrote down five that, uh, that I just wanted to call to your attention. Things to think about when considering your extended family. First one is this. Never allow family or friends to criticize your spouse. Y'all ever been in that situation? Where they say, you know, and it can, sometimes it might, you know, it might make you feel good. You know, when they start saying, man, your, your husband, man, he is, he is lousy. He is, he is bad. And you're like, yeah, he is lousy. <laughs> Don't allow your family or friends to do that. And you say, well, how do I just, as Barney says, nip it in the bud. Just stop it. Just, just say, hey, now, wait a minute. That's my wife you're talking about. That's my husband you You don't have the right to speak about them in that way. So don't allow family or friends to criticize your spouse. Second one, if needed, clearly communicate boundaries to your extended family as agreed upon by the couple. So if, you're, if your if uh, mother in law says I don't care no matter what you're going to be at my house every Christmas Eve if you <laughs> if you as a couple don't want you you need you may need to extend some boundaries you may need to say now Mom we love you but we, we're starting on here. we, we want to come we're going to be at your house every other Christmas Eve or every th- whatever it is you understand. If you need to communicate, and I know that's hard sometimes, like oh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or or whatever. Who's your priority? Your spouse, that's right. And if it's not healthy for them, then you need to consider that, and, and you may need to just just sit your family down and say, "Listen, love you, love to see you, but you can't you can't come over every twenty minutes. You know, you got here's how, and so you may need to may need to do that. Number three, do not tell your extended family things that you have not told your spouse. All right, is, uh, let me just, confession time. From personal experience, not a good idea, all right? There have been times when I've been talking to my mom on the phone, and, and Cindy's like sitting beside me, and all of a sudden, she's like, you didn't tell me that, when I'm telling my mom, that's not, it's not good, okay? Make sure that we are communicating to our spouse things that, that, about our lives, and that, that they want to know, and, and so forth. Uh, don't tell extended family things you haven't told your spouse. Uh, is this number five? Is this the last one? I can't remember. Do not seek counsel concerning marital issues. And I'm talking about with your extended family, uh, unless mutually agreed upon by the couple. In other words, you guys need to be talking about it. If, if you're having a hard time, whether it's communicating or in the bedroom or or whatever the problem is, don't don't go run into mom or to dad and and say, "Well, I got this problem. What do you think of it?" You need to talk as a couple, and you need to come to this conclusion. conclusions. And if you decide that because your parents have been married for X number of years or, or because they're X number of years old and perhaps they have some wisdom to them and you want to go and consult them about some issues and get their counsel and get their advice, hey, I think that's fantastic. But you need to be agreed upon it as a couple when you do it. You don't need to be some, you know the rogue guy just going out there and saying, I'm going to find out what mom and dad think. You're going to find out what your spouse thinks when you get home if you do that. <laughs> So, um, do not seek counsel concerning marital issues unless it's mutually agreed upon. And the last one, make allowances for yours and others' imperfections. Okay? Hey, you're not perfect. Can I just go ahead and say that to you? Don't walk out on me. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Your extended family is not perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Make allowances. Make allowances for yourself and recognize, okay, am I being a little over-sensitive about this? Or am I a little over-critical? Or what is their motive... Make some allowances. Recognize, hey, they probably had good intentions. They probably meant the right thing. Maybe I need to communicate a little more clearly to them or something else. But all I'm saying is it's just grace. It's just grace. Just, just make some allowances uh, for your family. And that's Q&A for today.